Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter. I'm Sean McCraney, your host. We welcome you tonight. Uh, shout outs to Nathan D. Thanks so much for your support. To Verlaine and Roger and Frank and Sarah from the Salt Lake City Airport. God bless you. From Janelle K. or to Janelle K. in Provo, Utah. On our website at www.bornagainmormon.com, you can get Andy's Christian movie reviews. And this week he recommends The Mighty. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's an excellent film. And uh, Andy reviews it on the website. If you want uh, ideas on what to rent or watch, uh, go to the website and you can check those out. We have house guests tonight, um, actually Peter and Jennifer Smith. And um, Pastor in the Pub is tonight. Again, this is our third week. We meet at Squatter's Pub after the show about 9.45, and we hang out there for an hour or two and talk about all things Christian, Mormon, uh, Gnostic, whatever's on your uh, plate, we talk about it, and relative, hopefully, to biblical Christianity. That's Squatter's Pub on 3rd South in downtown Salt Lake City tonight, every Tuesday night after the show, for as long as you guys want to hang out. A number of people have wanted to know and emailed about our opinion of the PBS special that was on last week on Monday and Tuesday, I believe, a four-hour special. And um, I believe that uh, I didn't see all of it, admittedly. I couldn't. Uh, we do this show at the same time that it aired. But I think the piece was visually uh, impressive. I think the filmmaker uh, was very creative and gifted. And um, I thought it was interesting to watch somebody from the LDS community, not an official representative of the LDS church, but someone from the LDS community, Daniel Peterson, uh, say, admit that Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon by putting a stone in the hat and uh, peering into it and reading uh, translations from it. I don't think uh, you would hear that often. I'll be really grateful when we hear an apostle just openly share that at general conference. Um, I wish they would have been a little bit more open and inviting on a lot of other information. I'm talking about a ton of information. In fact, while I watched the, the program, the part of the program that I could see, it made me think back to when I was a teenager and my friends and I would get in the car and we'd drive to Tijuana, Mexico to get fireworks. And when we'd come back through the border, the border patrol would say, because it's illegal to bring fireworks into the country from Mexico, they would say, do you have any fireworks? And we learned very early to say, 
Yes, sir, we do. Is, is there something wrong with that? Yes, you can't bring fireworks into the U.S. And we'd take out of our pocket a pack of firecrackers and they'd say, we're confiscating those young men. And they'd confiscate the firecrackers and they'd say, now on your way and don't do that again. And we'd say, we're sorry. Not knowing that we had a truckload of firecrackers and fireworks in the back of the car. And I sensed that when I watched uh, this PBS special, or at least the part that I saw. I mean, they admitted to Joseph Smith looking into the hat. They almost can't deny that now because everybody's writing about it. But there is so much more. They got a trunk. They're sitting on a powder keg of information. And if they would, if they would reveal that, they know it would blow the whole thing to smithereens. So they withhold a lot, a lot, a lot of information until it gets to a critical mass. And it's like they say, we've got to do something with this. It's now leaked out. And then they reveal it through. Uh, some guy named Daniel Peterson at BYU, who, by the way, is quite a rude man when you're online with him, uh, just as a side issue. So uh, I doubt that 50 years ago you would ever see anybody who was in the church saying, admitted, admitting that Joseph Smith used a seer stone in a hat to translate the Book of Mormon. I doubt that 50 years ago you'd see an apostle like Dallin H. Oaks on TV uh, saying he was sorry for Mountain Meadows massacre and giving an apology to the world. Uh, I'll be glad when they step out and, uh, and bit by bit announce more and more and more of the stuff that I give you. Um, I had several LDS people write me and say, a lot of the things you said on your show, I didn't believe. And then they revealed it on that show, the PBS special. And I said, wow, this is the second time I've heard this. Most of the stuff, sometimes I make mistakes, but most of the stuff you're going to see and hear on this show, you're going to be able to verify. And if it disturbs you, that's good. You should uh, check out and see why Mormonism has to be revealed to its membership. And then Mormonism has to be changed by its leadership before it can be embraced by Christianity. And that's kind of one of the drives of our, of our ministry. All right, recently and over the course of our ministry, we've received a number of emails and comments about how disappointing I must be to my parents and to my family who are LDS, my wife and my children because of what I'm doing, attacking another uh, uh, religion or another faith and how disappointing that must be. And uh, as I thought about this, I got a rather acerbic letter this last week uh, about this topic. And I, my mind went to the scriptures and I went to Matthew chapter 10, verses uh, 37 and 38. And it reads in the uh, King James, He that loveth his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. When I was first born again, and just for the audience's sake, uh, I was LDS for 40 years and actively involved, but when I was born again at the side of the road, I came to understand uh, what the relationship was between myself and my parents and the Lord. The Lord always takes uh, every bit of my devotion, every bit of my thoughts, all of my allegiance. And uh, a wonderful result of that is that when you give all of your allegiance and love to the Lord, it turns around into more love for people here on this earth. It's not the opposite. Um, if you give all your love to the people on this earth, you love the Lord less, and that's just not acceptable to Him. But if you love the Lord with all your heart and you follow Him with, with all you've got, you in turn turn to those parents and to the wife and to the children and say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love you as best I can, as best as the Lord wants me to. But it's interesting. Um, he also follows it up in that verse with, and he, and he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me 
is not worthy of me. Now, taking up the cross is kind of a metaphor for us. We don't actually physically pick up a wooden cross in our life, but it's a metaphor for us walking to death. It's our willingness to pick up and die to ourself and walk to death for him. And it says, not just take up the cross, but take up the cross and follow him. Okay, and there's a difference in that between Mormonism and Christianity. Let me explain. In the youth world, young adult, teenage world, even younger, there's a thing called Facebook. There's a thing called, um, uh, what's that thing called? MySpace. MySpace and Facebook. I should know MySpace. And the teens and the young adults get on there and they post their picture and they, all their friends are connected. And they kind of put a profile of what they're about. So my, my middle daughter... Uh, she decided she was going to go look up the profiles of all her LDS friends. So she went and she looked up the profiles and she said every single one of them under what's most important or what is really important religiously or whatever, all put the church. They all said the church. Okay. Now when she went and looked up Christian friends and, and saw their MySpace profile of themselves, they said what's, in, what's the most important thing to, in, to you in your life? And they all said the Lord or they said Jesus, or they said God, all right? There is a great difference between giving your allegiance to an earthly institution called the church with its prophets and its rites and its rituals and to give your personal allegiance and dedication to the Lord. There's a huge difference. That's one of the biggest differences between Christianity and Mormonism. True Christianity is not giving its allegiance to an institution. It's giving an allegiance to a real live being personally. All right. So I think that's important when um, you look at the differences in when you pick up your cross and following him or whether you're picking up a cross and following a church. All right. Uh, just want to let you know streaming video is working. If you go online at www.bornagainmormon.com, click on the TV show. When you get on that page, it will say watch the show live. Click on that, give it a good wait for a minute, and the show should pick up if your friends uh, want to watch it. Okay, let's begin with the word of prayer. Dear Lord, uh, pray for your spirit to be with us, be with our staff and crew, be with me as I speak, that I'll say and share the things you want me to share. Help our audience, our listening audience, that we'll have viewers whose hearts and minds and eyes and ears will open and that they will see the importance of having a regenerative relationship with you, established in you, based in you, and you in them. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to begin tonight with the name game. It's going to be great fun. The name game. Are you ready for this? Question number one. True or false? In the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon, the Hill Camorra was spelled... C-A-M-O-R-A-H. Is that true or false? Today, the Hill Camorra in the Book of Mormon is spelled C-U-M-O-R-A-H. But then was it spelled C-A-M-O-R-A-H? The answer is it's true. It was spelled that way. Why is that significant? Well, there's a thing called the Camorras Islands on a map. Back then, I believe it's in the Indian Ocean. And the Comoros Islands uh, also today in, in 1958 have a capital of Moroni, okay? So Comoros, uh, the Hill Comora, and Moroni, Moroni are both two names that are very closely related. Now people will say, well, it wasn't given that capital city name of Moroni until the 1959s, but the name Moroni was known by um, the Arabs of that time who inhabited the Comoros Islands. 
So now that is kind of an interesting name game because you can say, you can play it on either side of the fence. But our purpose, while we've covered the Book of Mormon, are to show outside influences that possibly help contribute to the construction of the Book of Mormon. Well, let's see if there are more in the name game number question, question number two. What two things do the following words have in common? Alpha, Angola, Antipas, Antipas, uh, Archiantus, Isaias, Jonas, Judea, Omega, Timothy, and Zenos. What do those two things uh, have in common with all those names? The answer, first, all of them are found in the Book of Mormon. Every one of those names. Second, they're all Greek names. Every one of them, Timothy, Zenos. And remember from last week, we have the Greece, Greek civilization out here, and we have the Book of Mormon over here in time. And in between, we have a thousand years and we suddenly were having Greek names appear in this book that was supposed to have been written on gold plates this many years before. It's an impossibility. It would be like Moses writing in the, uh, in the uh, Pentateuch the name Britney Spears. I mean, uh, it would be like reading Britney Spears in the Bible. It's just come on, you know. So you're not going to find those Greek names in the Book of Mormon. All right. Highly improbable. Question number three. Are the Twelve Apostles of the Book of Mormon similar to the 12 apostles in the Bible in any way? The answer is yes. Now, there were three pairs of New Testament apostles in the Bible that shared the same name. So it's six men, three pairs. There was Simon Peter and Simon the Canaanite. There was James the son of Alphaeus and James the son of Zebedee. And there was Judas, the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. Okay, So that's six men, and two of each shared the same name. Oddly enough, from miraculous coincidence, the disciples that Jesus supposedly called in the New World, here in the Americas, um, of a different race and religion and everything else, not religion according to Mormons, they, their apostles, the 12 apostles, also shared the same name. Six men each sharing the same name. We have Jonas and Jonas. Those were two of the apostles here in the Americas in the Book of Mormon. We have Mathani and Mathaniha. I love it when he adds the ha's. Mathaniha. And we have Cumin and Cumanonhai. I like when he adds the ha's too. The ha's and the ha's. Sounds very official, doesn't it? So how you have a coincidence of 12 apostles that Jesus personally calls in the biblical times that all happen to ha six of them happen to share the same name three times. And then in the Book of Mormon, you have the same thing, except you have Book of Mormon type names for each of them. It's an amazing coincidence, isn't it? The, the divine pattern or another evidence of plagiarism. Question number four. What significance could these actual geographical locations, which were all located within 200 miles of Joseph Smith's home, what coincidence could they play in the construction of the Book of Mormon? Now, watch your screen. We're going to bring up these names, all right? These were locations that were in Joseph Smith's neighborhood within 200 miles of him, all right? We have Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania. We have Oneida, New York, Angola, New York. Morgantown, PA, Jacobsburg, PA, Alma, Quebec, Shalohi, Ohio, 
Kiskimentus River, Ohio, Morin, Quebec, Sherbrooke, Quebec, Tecumseh, Quebec, and Ripley, Maine. All right, now let's go through those and see if there are any types of plagiaristic uh, names that Joseph could have used in the Book of Mormon. So we go to the first one, Lehi. Lehi Valley, PA, we have Lehi, Father Lehi. Is it a coincidence? Well, maybe, you know, there's a Lehi here, Lehi, Lehi Valley, maybe that's a coincidence. Let's go to the next one, Oneida, New York. Oh, there's an Oneida in the Book of Mormon. It's amazing. Okay, let's go to Angola, New York. There is an Angola in the Book of Mormon. Now, maybe a really far-fetched uh, thing, but remember, ever since we've been studying the Book of Mormon, we've been saying, listen, did Joseph Smith get this information from golden plates written long ago, or did he take it from another source? If he took it from other sources, you know it's a plagiarism and you know it's false. We go to Morgantown, PA. We come up with Morianton. Now you might think that's, that's kind of far away. It really isn't. All you have to do is take the I in Morianton and put a G there and you have Morganton, like Morgantown. We go to Jacobsburg, PA. We have Jacob Ugoth. Jacob Ugoth versus Jacobsburg. Again, if you take two letters and change them there, you have Jacobsburg. We go to Alma, Quebec. Straight across, we've got another Alma. We go to Shilohai, Shil Ohio. We have Shilohai in the Book of Mormon. We go to Kishmanintis River. We have Kishkumen. You know, you know if you've played a game, if you're sitting there giving your kids and telling them a story and at bedtime and you're making it up and you're trying to think of a name of somebody and you look over on the bookshelf and there is a, a Sarah Tall and Proud and you say, and the girl's name was Sarah. You just pull it from the things you're looking at. Same stuff. More in Quebec, we have a character in the Book of Mormon named Moron. Now, I don't think Joseph Smith knew that what that would mean in our day and age, but I think he took it from Quebec. Sherba, Quebec, we have Sher. Tecumseh, Quebec, we have Tiancum. And Ripley, Maine, we have Ripley Ancum. Okay, so in the name game, I think that you can see that the fun never ends with the Book of Mormon. We've had uh, comparisons all the way across the board, and when it comes to the name game, uh, I truly look for a documentary that will come out on PBS where we see a prophet of the LDS church or an apostle, uh, preferably the prophet, say, you know, we have for a long time bought into the Book of Mormon and called it the most correct book. We have, because of all the evidence in front of us, discovered it to be a plagiarized fraud. And we do not want our people to put their faith and trust in a book that came from the imagination of, a, of an adventurous young man. We instead, as a church, turn to the Bible as the thing that will lead and guide us in our uh, walk with the Lord. I look forward to that day. Hopefully shows like this will happen. All right, enough of the name game. Let's look at another source Joseph borrowed from in composing the Book of Mormon. This is going to be the last thing of comparing things that are in the Book of Mormon. There are many others. Next week, we're going to talk about the witnesses to the Book of Mormon. But tonight, hang on to your bonnets, children. We are going downhill on a fast-moving cart because this is a really interesting one, all right? Listen closely. In 1823, when Joseph Smith was a 17-year-old boy, this is before the Book of Mormon came out, a pastor named Ethan Smith, he was no relation to Joseph, wrote a fictional book and he called it View of the Hebrews or the Tribes of Israel in America. From 1821 to 1826, this was all before the Book of Mormon ever came out, the author of the book was a pastor 
to Oliver Cowdery and his family in Pulteney, Vermont. Okay? So Oliver Cowdery, who helped translate the Book of Mormon, he had a pastor who wrote a book called View of the Hebrews. And this pastor was his pastor for five years. In case you didn't know, or to help you remember, Oliver Cowdery not only helped Joseph Smith translate the Book of Mormon, Oliver Cowdery was one of the witnesses of the angel to the Book of Mormon, and Oliver Cowdery, which is very rarely talked about, was also Joseph Smith's cousin. Okay? This was a family deal. I never heard that. I never learned that Oliver Cowdery was Joseph Smith's cousin. This is something that's very rarely mentioned. View of the Hebrews, this book, was very popular, and it was distributed and talked about by the people all through the New England uh, era, area. The second edition of the Book of Mormon, the book was so popular, they printed a second edition. That came out in 1825. So that's five years before the Book of Mormon ever saw its first full print, okay, or any print. There was a great deal of interest in the time, as there, as there always was, in the origins, custom, religion, and life of the Indians. And during that time, this pastor, Ethan Smith, gathered up a bunch of references, reference material from like 40 different sources, and he compiled this book that was called The View of the Hebrews. Now, there was an early church historian by the name of B.H. Roberts, and B.H. Roberts, um, was very well respected. He crossed the plains, came into Salt Lake uh, City, lived as a Latter-day Saint, was an authority for the church, wrote History of the Church, volumes one through six, I believe, or maybe more. And he did a comparative study of the Book of Mormon and the view of the Hebrews. And his findings were compiled in a book uh, by somebody at BYU called Studies of the Book of Mormon. I want to read to you what B.H. Roberts said about the comparisons of the view of the Hebrews and the Book of Mormon, all right? Now just listen, we're putting this on record so you can watch this later in the series about the Book of Mormon. The view of the Hebrew not only suggests but pleads on every page for Israelitish origin of the American Indians. All right? It deals with the destruction of Jerusalem and the scattering of Israel as does the Book of Mormon. The view of the Hebrew deals with the future gathering of Israel and the restoration of the ten tribes as does the Book of Mormon. It emphasizes and uses much of the material from the prophecies of Isaiah, including whole chapters, as does the Book of Mormon. The view of the Hebrews holds that the peopling of the New World, America, was by migrations from the Old World, so does the Book of Mormon. Five years before the Book of Mormon ever came out, I remind you. In both cases, the journeys of these peoples was northward, in both cases, the colonies entered into a valley with the great river. They both encountered seas of many waters. And in the course of their journey, they crossed them. In both cases, the journey was a long one. The motive in both cases was religious. Are you seeing the theme and framework of the Book of Mormon coming about when Oliver Cowdery could have shared the view of the Hebrews with his cousin Joseph on how to construct and make this book up? Two classes of people, the... The view of the Hebrews supposes that his lost tribes divide into two classes. The one fostering the arts and, uh, of civilization. So we have a class that was very civilized and, and artistic and, and prosperous and industrious. And the other followed wild hunting and indolent life that ultimately led to barbarism. This is exactly what happens in the theme of the Book of Mormon. 
Long and dismal wars break out in the view of the Hebrews uh, between the barbarous division and the civilized divisions. The same occurs between the Nephite and Lamanite divisions, and uh, they're drawn there in the Book of Mormon between civilized and barbarous. The savage division of the view of the Hebrews utterly exterminates the civilized. The Lamanites in the Book of Mormon utterly exterminate the civilized there. Same themes. The view of the Hebrews book assumes that an ancient civilized people uh, uh, grew in the mechanic arts, in language, in knowledge of iron and other uh, metals. They also grew in their abilities in navigation. The Book of Mormon also assigns these characteristics to the civilized Nephites. The view of the Hebrews assumes that this race occupied the whole extent of the American continent. The Book of Mormon does the same for its peoples. Church history and church leaders have always given Mormons the idea that the whole continent was covered by this nation of, uh, of Israelites who, who turned into the Nephites. Now they don't. Now they've pulled back from that and they've changed it, but it used to be that way. It also assumes that the Indian tongue had one language, Hebrew. This is the, book of, uh, the view of the Hebrews. Book of Mormon, the same thing. This is a really good one. Listen to this. The view of the Hebrews describes an instrument around the mound findings that comprised of a breastplate with two white buckhorn buttons attached, quote, in imitation of the precious stones of the Urim. All right. Before the Book of Mormon ever came out, the view of the Hebrews said there was a breastplate with this Urim that they would help to translate the plates. The same thing Joseph Smith claimed was in the box with the golden plates to help him translate. What more do you need? I mean, it's almost like I should, I should get a thousand emails now saying, okay, I'm convinced. What do I do? But, but we don't. We can c continue to get people defending. How can you defend this stuff? View of the Hebrews describes extensive military fortifications linking cities in the Ohio and Mississippi Valley. And they had watchtowers that overlooked the areas. The Book of Mormon, the people erected watchtowers too. Those very words uh, overlooking the Book of Mormon describes high places where people would go up to worship. The view of the Hebrews has uh, high places where people would go and worship in their religious ceremonies. Again, another one. And in their government, the ancient inhabitants affect a change going from a monarchy type of government to a republic. The same thing happens in the Book of Mormon. All right. And finally... Um, the view of the Hebrews speaks of the gospel having been preached in the ancient Americas. The Book of Mormon teaches of the gospel having been preached in the ancient Americas. The only difference is that in the view of the Hebrews, Quetzalcoatl is the central figure that comes. And in the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith made it better by having Jesus Christ himself come and, uh, and share with the ancient inhabitants the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, the Book of Mormon has been presented to the world as a translation of God's Word that was written on golden plates anciently. Um, over the last six weeks, we have shown you that the framework and the content of the Book of Mormon have come from at least six, if not ten, fifteen different sources of which it is a compilation book. Since 1830, the LDS Church, its leaders, its missionaries, its bishops, its members use the Book of Mormon as bait. They stick it in your face and they say, read this book and you ask me if that's not true. And when you read it, it covers basic Christianity. It just covers the basics of it. 
That's not the question, does it teach true principles? The question is, is it true? It's not. It's false. It's a fraud. And once people buy the book as being so good, probably because they really don't have an understanding of the Bible, that they take this book and they say, wow, I buy into it. Therefore, Joseph must have been a prophet. And then Joseph goes off and he starts up with everything else, which we're going to uh, talk about in the coming weeks, including the Pearl of Great Price, which is just amazing. And polygamy, which is going to blow your socks off when we get into that. You're going to learn things you, you can't believe. And, uh, it's a whole, and temples and the temple rites for salvation, it's all a disaster. And it's all based on this first fraudulent book coming out and being presented to the world as truth. Let's go to the telephones, 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. Please, if you're calling, remember to turn your TVs down or off and um, make your questions short and uh, be nice to me. All right, we're going to Dan and Logan, first-time caller. Dan, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Hey, Dan. Hi, how are you? I'm uh, just a comment, though. When we first moved here from California, yeah. we saw these intelligent people sitting around discovering, discussing the Book of Mormon. Yes. And amount to a Dick and Jane book, to me, raised to college level. And I was amazed that they could sit there with a straight face and discuss it. Yeah, yeah. How long ago did you move from California? Uh, we've been here uh, nine years. Yeah. You're a Christian? Yes. Well, you know, uh, they are, were raised singing songs about how true it was. They were raised seeing pictures about, of Joseph pulling the plates out. They've heard the story over and over and over again. As congregation, they sing a song, The golden plates lay hidden deep in the mountainside until God found one faithful in whom he could confide. And it's all about, oh, how lovely was the morning. And they have this whole idea in their brain. And I don't fault them. I was one of them at one time. And you want to believe, you seem to believe, until you start doing a little bit of investigation. And then all heck comes crashing down. Yeah, well, like I said, it was just amazing to me that God gave me the discernment to see that, I mean, it is just such a falsification, you know, and, and he, like yeah. you said, he just plagiarized and just, it's, it's a little novella is what it is. It really is. It really is. Great call, Dan. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. We're going to Carl, an American Fork, first-time caller. Carl, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello, Sean. It's nice to talk to you. I've enjoyed I, your program. Thanks, man. Uh, I'm an ex-Mormon, and uh, I went on a mission 40 years ago. Uh, I found out uh, the truth about Joseph Smith probably a year and a half ago. And I found it out by looking back through a lot of the documents and things you're quoting. And uh, I, I thoroughly enjoy your outlook on, on Mormonism. Okay. Now, my problem is that since I don't have a, a faith to hold on to as far as Mormonism goes, I, I've gone to Christianity looking and searching. Uh, my wife's a born-again Christian. Uh, she hopes that all of a sudden I would embrace Christianity. Well, in order to do that, I decided, well, I've got to go back to the start. So what I did is I went back to the Old Testament, feeling that, okay, if you're going to go back to the start of Mormonism and Joseph Smith, I need to go back to the Old Testament. I have a real problem with the Old Testament. And I guess I just have one basic question for you. Okay, all right. In order for me to embrace Christianity, do I have to accept the Old Testament as the inerrant Word of God? 
Well, uh, wow, it's, a, it's quite a, qu a question. That's actually one of the best questions we've, I've had on this show. Um, because I think there's uh, probably a thousand different answers depending on the Christian you'd talk to. What saves you is not the Bible or believing that it's inerrant. I think that uh, what's, I don't think that, I know that what saves you is faith in Jesus Christ. Now, um, there's, high, there's Christians who are of higher criticism who take the word and they really attack it but believe Jesus is the Son of God, God incarnate. I personally believe that your walk as a Christian uh, really truly isn't complete unless you uh, embrace the, the Bible. The thing that I, uh, the Old Testament uh, too, I think that uh, there are answers for the problems you have with the Old Testament. And uh, I think that if you were to sit down with an Old Testament scholar, I think those things that every one of them that you could l lay out a laundry list point by point, I think you could be satisfied um, to the answers that they have. I know there have been things that have essentially looked like the Old Testament was in real trouble. And a decade or two later, they had uh, archaeological discoveries that proved that it wasn't. I mean, you may have problem with the idea of the God of the Old Testament and uh, killing uh, children and women and things like that. But that, in the context, I think proves out as answerable. So there's, it's, I'm, kind of, I'm not beating around the bush. I just think that the essentials is faith in Jesus Christ and being born again. And once that occurs, your eyes open and you might understand the Old Testament in a new uh, and living way. Okay. Well, I, let me, I just have one request of you, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I understand you do a, a program studying the New Testament at other times. Yeah. Are you ever going to entertain doing that with the Old Testament? Absolutely. In fact, I, I enjoy uh, the Old Testament almost as much, if not more. In, uh, in theology school, I completely absorbed the Old Testament, and we went through a lot of um, you know, the history and how it compared and the borrowings and, and the Ptolemies and the whole history of what brought that book together. And I think it will be very interesting. So ultimately, we are going to go verse by verse and get to uh, the Old Testament. Okay. Uh, what do you think of the book of Job? I think it's, uh, if, I, if memory serves, it's one of the oldest books of the Old Testament. I think it's a beautiful piece of poetry. I think it's a wonderful, uh, wonderfully written book, and I'm inspired by it. Is, is it a literal uh, situation where the God, or God and the devil, get together and, and more or less play games with the man? Yeah, I, uh, I think it's uh, literal in the, in the sense that you're speaking of, and I, but I don't believe it was playing games. I think that uh, Satan, in the context of the Bible, is an accuser, and he spends his time accusing all believers that they don't have faith, that they're not worthy of God's kingdom. Luckily, when Jesus came, he became our mediator between uh, us and the Father, and Jesus stands up and says, hey, they are worthy. But before that, Satan was going before an angel who has access and is under control of God. He had access and said, you, you, your followers aren't followers. And he said, let, take Job, for instance. And uh, God said, okay, take Job. And he said, let me, let me test him. You know, and God's omnipotent. He know, he's omniscient. He knows the whole thing. But he let it happen. I think it was a literal story. I don't think it was game playing. I think that, you know, sometimes we can put ourselves in Job's place. You don't like that God, though, I take it. Huh? You don't like that God, I take it. Well, it, it, it's like, you know, the God of the Old Testament uh, is often commented as different than the God of the New Testament. 
and that the people of the Old Testament evidently were a different type of people. And all of a sudden, when Christ came and his message, uh, you know, took care of what the Old Testament was trying to do with those people, all of a sudden mankind changed to uh, react to Christ's message and no longer were the type of people that were under the Old Testament law? It's a great, your, your comment's a great one. We're going on too long, but let me say this. I think it's a great comment. God has not changed. God is as wrathful and, and the same God of the Old Testament is the new. What people today don't understand is that without Jesus, they're going to meet that God of wrath. He has not changed in the least. It's now we have Jesus and everything's lovey-dovey and, and everything's great and peace, love, and Jesus. And that's true. You have that when you accept him and you are spiritually reborn because he took the brunt of God's wrath. But you know what? You, you seriously have to understand and the viewers have to understand the God of the Old Testament, he is still the God of the Old Testament. He is still wrathful. He is still demands exact judgment and, and obedience. But for believers, we get it through our faith in Jesus, who was obedient exactly. Listen, do you live near uh, uh, downtown Salt Lake City? Excuse me? Do you live near downtown Salt Lake City? No, I'm, I'm probably about 30 miles south. Oh. Well, we have to get together sometime. Email me and see if we can meet. I'd love to talk to you more. Okay. Thank All right, you. Carl. Take care. Bye-bye. We're going to Thomas, first-time caller in Provo. Thomas, you're on Heart of the Matter. Thomas, turn your TV off. Thomas. 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 Scouting Thomas. Alfred and Orem. Alfred, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, sir. I'm just to let you know how great your television show is down here in Orem, Happy Valley. Awesome, man. Can you do for us? And I had a question. Me and my mom got approached by some Mormon missionaries. Uh-huh. And I'm kind of wondering if you have any ideas on when they come approach you, how to just let them know that you're not interested. And it just seems like they never, they don't listen to you and they keep on and on. And I just thought if you had any great ideas on what to say to them. Oh, I have some fun ones. I mean, I love messing with the missionaries. It's one of my favorite pastimes in Huntington Beach. They, they come and try to ambush me and thinking that, Every time a new one comes in, they think they're going to come in and get the anti-Mormon. Uh, yeah. You know, you might want to say uh, when they start going, just, let me ask you one question, Al, just one question. How many wives did Joseph Smith have? Just tell me, how many wives? 20-something. <laughs> and, and they'll say, one, and say, no, come on, think again. And, uh, the, and then you might get a smart one who says, well, uh, 30 or 33. Hey, that's very good. Now, how many did Emma know about? Uh, all of them? No, no, no. You know, how am I supposed to listen to you? You don't even know what you're talking about, Elder. Come on, man. Be friendly with them. Joke with them. Just, and just throw stuff out that they don't know and just keep them at bay that way. The other thing to do is to put all that aside and then just kind of talk to them about the Lord and say, you know, I know you have a message to give me and I'm willing to listen to it, but let me, if I get equal time and I can share some message with you. And, and then when you do, and about Christianity and how it's different, and they say, no, 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 we're the same, it'll open up some doors for you to plant some seeds. And that's really what we're doing, audience, is we're planting seeds for the future. Very rarely are you going to have someone change like that. Mm-hmm. Hope that helps. Yes, perfect. Thank you so much. All right, brother. Everything. Mm-hmm. Take care. Bye-bye. We're going to Kimberly and American Fork. Uh, first-time caller. Kimberly, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Hi, Kimberly. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. You're on the air. Oh, I am. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, 
Um, I really, really appreciate what you're doing. This is the first time watching. Um, I was born in the Mormon Church. Um, my father and was born in the Mormon Church as well. Um, he is a pedophile, and I just can't tell you how many secrets there are, um, and it's hidden. Um, and I hate, I hate that. I, I was married in the temple. Um, it's, it's a big joke, and I totally, 100%, believe in what you're doing. Huh. Um, Did you? I, they won't let me get a, a temple divorce. Um, so they, for my husband that was abusive, and that's why I divorced him. And they tell me that I'm going to be with him in the afterlife. And I mean, it's just a total joke. And I just, wow. I'm, I'm frustrated. My sister just barely got ma uh, married in the temple, and I just, I want so bad to tell her, you know. But it's like it's so hard living here in Utah. Yeah. And I'm just really excited. Um, about what you're doing, and I can't wait till you talk about the temple stuff because it is the biggest joke. Yeah. Um, when I got pulled through the veil, I got pulled through the veil by a total stranger. My husband didn't even um, pull me through the veil or whatever, and it's just like a total big joke. And it's I just want to laugh and just I want to share it with everybody that it's just a big joke. But then I don't want to get you know talked about. My neighbors are all Mormons, and I mean. Kimberly, do you uh, you have you work here in in Utah? Um, not right now, no. Okay, um, and they won't grant you a temple divorce. No. Well, maybe we can do something about that, Kimberly. Why don't you email me, and uh, you can go to www.bornagainmormon.com, and let's see if we can do something about them not granting you a temple divorce. Let's see if we great. can if we can uh, uh, just step in and talk to the LDS Church to try to help you out. And in the meantime, when you email me, give your address. We'll send you a book, and uh, that might help as well. Thank you so much. Hey, Kimberly, one last question. Are you, have you replaced the religion of Mormonism with anything in your life? Um, not right now. Right now I'm trying to find the right place. Um, what city are you in? I'm in American Fork. Okay, there's a Mountain View Calvary Chapel, Pastor Joe McCormick, in, uh, in that area. And it's excellent, and it's low-key, and it's not weird or anything, and uh, you'll really like it. Try that out. Thank you. I will. All right, Kimberly. God bless you. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. We are going to Bruce in Murray on line two. Bruce, first-time caller. You're on Heart of the Matter. Yes. Hi, uh, Sean. This is Bruce. I live in Murray. I've been in Utah most of my life. Uh-huh. But a uh, quick question for you. You were talking earlier about... Um, these different, when, when Christ was re-erected uh, re or whatever, came over to the Americas and talked to the Lamanites and the Nephites. Right. And from what I've understood in the past is, geez, there's, is there any physical evidence or has there been discovered any about these, these uh, civilizations and groups like farms and so forth that study from BYU perspective? Um, have they ever come up with any real, really you know, something to prove that these people existed because they were pretty widespread, like you said, as yeah. they uh, confer. I'm, no. I'm just going to let you answer the question. I'm not going to stay on, but I'd like to hear you. Okay, brother, thanks. Uh, in answer to that, that question, um, Farms has two answers. One answer is there is all kinds of evidence all over the place for the Book of Mormon. Tons of archaeological evidence. We just don't know that it's evidence. 
we just can't tell that these carvings really were from the Nephites or that stone that has a little bit of a dip out of it was actually used when they pounded their corn. They just don't know. That's one of the responses. The other response, which is an honest response, is there's not any. And, uh, you know, if you look, they, they have a lot of hypothecation. They have a lot of theory. They have a lot of uh, stuff. But when it comes to anything from the uh, uh, Incas and all the other civilizations, there is absolutely no archaeological evidence for the Book of Mormon available today. Now, they could solve this problem very quickly if the Mormon church is so sure when they get up in their general conference that the Book of Mormon is true, it is a true book as they say it happened, they could just go to that hill Cumorah and they could dig it up. They could take a, just a big scooper and take a couple scoops out because there's supposed to be millions, or not millions, hundreds of thousands, maybe 10,000, sorry on my facts here, I could be wrong, of bones from the great war that occurred there. There should be coins, there should be swords, there should be helmets and breastplates of iron all through that area and the church owns it. If they want to settle the issue right now, they dig it up and they show us the evidence. Now, Latter-day Saints will say they could show it to you and you wouldn't believe. I'll tell you right now, if they show me a sword from that day, I will, I will go back, but I won't have to. I won't have to because it won't happen, all right? It's just not true. So there's no archaeological evidence. Let's go to Frank and Sandy, first-time caller. Frank, you're on Heart of the Matter. Uh, hi, I'm, uh, I have a question about... Uh the Book of Mormon. You talked about that a little bit earlier. Yes. Uh, I, I respect the Mormon people. I wanted to mention that, and I like uh, most of the Mormons that I've, that I've ever met. Uh-huh. I have read the Book of Mormon, and I've uh, had uh, the instructions for the Mormon missionaries, but the uh, question I had was, after reading the Book of Mormon, I, I just didn't see the attraction to it. I wondered if you had any theory uh, regarding, or any ideas regarding what the attraction is. I mean, how do they get converts? Uh, why would somebody read the Book of Mormon, for example, and then be interested in the LDS Church? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a, it's a really good question. Uh, Mark Twain called the Book of Mormon chloroform in print, and uh, <laughs> he, he, he also said if you take the, and it came to passes out, you'd have a pamphlet. So um, I don't know what the draw is, except what I, what I think is that you take a person who's searching for spiritual truth, they don't know the Bible, they haven't read it, and they, you give them this first, and then they, they read it, then they're going to say, wow, this is, is, is really something to it. Because it does preach so much of 19th century Christian themes. And so they must resonate to the truth that are in those 19th century Christian themes, and they feel that no teenage boy could have compiled that book, therefore it must be, be true. That's one idea. The other idea is maybe they receive some kind of spiritual manifestation from that. Where that spirit comes from, I'm not going to say. Um, it may, may be that they are uh, overwhelmed by the amount of reading it is, and they just say, geez, this must be true. You know, I don't know. It's too far-fetched not to be. I don't know what the, what the attraction is. Latter-day Saints will say it's because it's a true book, but we, we just know that that's not, that's not the case. Well, it's I'm, a good question, though. Very good question. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I think we could say the same thing about the Pearl of Great Price. You know, 20 years ago, the Pearl of Great Price was held up right in equal standing with all the other uh, books of Scripture in the LDS Church, and I sincerely believe that most Latter-day Saints are just trying to distance themselves from the thing altogether. And at one time, people, you know, they believed in the Kolob, and they believed in all the things that, that are talked about in that book. So, 
Uh, I don't know. Don't know the answer to that one. Apologies. Let's go to Gabriel on line one. First time caller again. Gabriel, you're on Heart of the Matter. Uh, yes, uh, Sean. Uh, um, it's my first time calling, and uh, just want to praise the Lord for your ministry, first of all. And uh, I have recently gotten married with um, an LDS uh, person, and uh, she has been inviting her bishop to um, come visit our home, and uh, as usual, he's a very nice uh, individual. Most of the Mormon folks are. Yeah. Uh, seem to be good people. But um, I just wanted to know, uh, what are your thoughts on what should be discussed with him as far as him being a bishop, not your average missionary? Um, obviously, he has more knowledge, and uh, um, I, just want, I just wanted to know what your thoughts are on that. Well, I'm putting myself in your place, and I'm trying to imagine if that was my situation and if I had a bishop come to my house. And I would talk to him mostly, I would talk to him about salvation. And I would talk to him about knowing that salvation comes by faith, uh, not of works, lest any man should boast. And uh, that we know by faith we're saved. And then when he says we agree with that, then I would bring up the things that make Mormonism unique in their soteriology or in their, their idea of salvation. And I would bring up the temple. And I would say that is required for salvation. And he, he might kibitz and say, well, that's not required for salvation because he's not talking about salvation. He's talking about exaltation. So you'd have to clarify that what you mean is I am saved. That means I live with God after this life by grace through faith. And then, when he sa- and then you can say to him, how does a Mormon live with God after this life? And if he says by faith only, then he's a very unusual bishop. And I think he would. And then if he says by faith, say, so I don't need to have the new and everlasting covenant. I don't need to receive my endowment. I don't need to be baptized, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost by laying on of hands by somebody with the proper authority. You can go down the laundry list of things that you have to do in the LDS church to live with God after this life. And just kind of gently... When he gives you the standard responses, just question that again with what you know about the Bible. It sounds like you're a Christian. Uh, you said praise the Lord, and most Christians talk that way, so I'm assuming you are? Yes, yes, I'm a Christian, uh, born again, uh, um, and uh, my, my wife, unfortunately, is not, and uh, you, of all people, should know what, what the struggle is with that. But um, basically what you're saying is uh, I should go down uh, the road of, of Mormon doctrines, right? Yeah, I would use Mormon doctrine, and, uh, and he, uh, you might have him, this happens often, agreeing with everything you say and say, oh, well, we don't worry about the temple, and you know, don't worry, that's not really for salvation. He might give you his own opinions just to be agreeable with you. He might even believe what he's saying, but Mormon doctrine is... You know, you've got to be sealed in the temple. You've got to have the endowment. You've got to be baptized, gift to the Holy Ghost, and all these other things, enduring to the end by obeying certain things, paying the tithing, all these things that you've got to do to make sure that you return to live with, or that you live with God. So uh, you have a long road ahead of you. I want to clarify, my wife uh, was um, LDS as I, after I left the church. She uh, retained her uh, membership uh, but she is a Christian through and through now, and so there is light at the end of the tunnel for you. Show your wife the love of Jesus in your heart, and you just keep praying and being patient and loving with her, and she'll come to see the differences. Amen. And uh, 
I just had one comment, uh, and I'll take a response off the air. Okay. Um, my pastor, I had a quick talk to him about that, uh, which happens to be uh, Chuck Bickle here at uh, Faith Baptist Church in Layton. Yeah. And um, he, he actually said that the Bible actually instructs us as Christians not to have um, these kind of encounters with, 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 like the way I'm having with a bishop of the Mormon religion. Uh, are, you, are you familiar with that? And if so, um, can you just comment on that? Well, as as your pa as your pastor, he might be trying to take into account your situation when he says that, and he's using that that advice to you in context of your life. But if you are if you are really strong in the Word and you are a through and through Christian, I think that there's uh, no biblical edict that says you can't share with a Mormon bishop. But remember, your pastor uh, is your pastor, and he might know your situation. I'm sure he does far better than I do. Understood, brother. Uh, once again, I praise the Lord for your ministry. Thanks for your responses on the email. And I just want to say that I love you. God bless. Love you too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. We're going to Chantel in Clearfield. Chantel, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. Good. You're on the air. All right. Thank you. I have a question for you. Um, yes. I am a mother of two single, of two children. Uh-huh. Um, growing up as a Christian, my life, being in the state of Utah. Wow. And uh, turn that down. You can't have that off. And, okay, my question is, move, Devin. Okay, my question is that living in the state of Utah, being a Christian, why is there not any, why isn't there any, um, like, the, semin the seminary? For the LDS, why isn't there any for like the Christians? Well, if we have anything to do with it, there's gonna be at some point in time. But that is a very man. We're getting some really good questions and suggestions tonight. Mm -hmm. Very thought out. That is phenomenal. Why don't the Christian churches? Why don't we start up a school program for Christian kids to have seminary in the morning or during school hours that they can go and they can worship the Lord? That is great, Chantel. Will you email me with your address and maybe we can work together and have you help set that up? Yeah, I will do that because that's one of the questions that my kids do have is because they always have these, their, all their friends are Mormons uh -huh. and they get all these questions asked and they want to do the, have a Bible in class, in school, but they can't. They can't even talk about God in school. Well, we just need to, we need to bring in a, a, a equal time for the Christian kids in this state. That would be a great thing for every Christian in the state to start doing. Be great for our kids, first of all. Right. Yeah. Excellent, Chantel. Please email me and we'll talk more. I will do that. Okay, God bless. God bless you. Thank you. Bye-bye. We're going to Linda. That was a great call. Uh, going to Linda on line four. Linda, you're on Heart of the Matter. Linda? Hi. Hi. You're Hi. on the air. You're on the air, Linda. Okay. Um, I just wanted to call and thank you for your show. It, I believe that it has helped a lot of people out there. I am born-again Christian, and I am glad. Um, I was ra adopted and raised in a Mormon home, uh -huh. and the family line is very strong with the Mormon church. Mm -hmm. And their grandmother, which was my grandmother, even received Mother of the Year here in Utah. Wow. 
That's that's pretty big. Yeah. Um, my question is, is uh, I'm. I noticed that in Mormon homes, and as I grew up in one, that when it came to child abuse and child neglect, that a lot of these Mormon homes that I saw that I went into and played in the home, or whether it came to me growing up in my home, uh, their way of discipline is abuse. A lot of them that I saw, um, how they uh, handled situations with their children. Uh-huh. And uh, I wonder why they are able to get away with child abuse and call it discipline in the state of Utah, but yet if it was somebody who wasn't Mormon and committed the same acts like locking a child in a bedroom or whipping them or smothering them with the pillow, they're considered disciplining their children and not abusing their children, but the person that isn't Mormon is convicted of it and is, you know... Yeah. Well... Uh, shown to be a child abuser. Um, I I just noticed that in the Mormon church that there's a lot of cover-up and that the church and the people really, even the families, all get together and they just cover up certain things from child abuse, sex abuse, to crimes that could be committed. Well, you're the second call tonight we've had on, on something like this. And uh, will you email me and so that uh, we can have a further dialogue on that? We're running out of time. I don't have an answer, uh, except that, you know, when you uh, birds of a feather flock together and they protect, that's what all people groups do. And I mean, every religious organization, when they have uh, dirty laundry, they stick together in keeping that out from the public eye. And the LDS church is no different when it comes to a people group. But maybe there's more evidence of that in this state. I haven't read the sociological studies. But I would love to talk to you more about it, and I uh, really appreciate your call. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, we are out of time, Tom and Roy. I'm sorry we're out of time, but uh, I just want to remind you of a couple things. Uh, Pastor in the pub tonight from 9.45 till whenever, till they kick us out. And uh, we get there and we talk about whatever you want to talk about. And uh, uh, whoever you are, whatever religious background, We hope you'll come. Next week, we're going to examine the witnesses of the Book of Mormon. One of the big defenses that Mormons have for the Book of Mormon is that there were witnesses that claimed that they saw what they saw in him, and we're going to discuss that, and you're going to have your eyes opened even when it comes to the witnesses. The Infallible Word airs Monday nights at 9.30 if you want to do a verse-by-verse study of the Bible. That will help you. It's also replayed on Friday evenings at 8.30 p.m., So we invite you to join us here. And uh, remember that you can go to www.bornagainmormon.com and receive uh, more information on everything our ministry is about. I've got a ton of emails. I'm sorry to those of you who I said I'll respond on the show to your emails. I have them here. But next week, I'll try to get to the emails before we get into the topic of uh, the witnesses to the Book of Mormon. Until that time, stay on your knees, keep reading the Word. God bless you.